You are listening to The Real Men Feel Show with Andy Grant. Real Men Feel encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been taught, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having. Listen to us on podcast platforms including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and many more. You can also watch the show on YouTube by visiting realmenfeel.org slash YouTube. Or subscribe on iTunes by visiting realmenfeel.org slash iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at realmenfeel.org and at facebook.com slash realmenfeelshow. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now, let's get into this week's show. Hello and welcome again to The Real Men Feel Show. This is your host, Andy Grant. And today I'm very excited to welcome back a returning guest. Uh, he is a licensed psychotherapist for over 40 years, been doing men's work for 70 years, <laughs> and is the author of 15 books, including My Distant Dad, Healing the Family Father Wound, which I had the pleasure and honor of, of narrating the audiobook, audiobook version of that. So, so look for that to read or listen to, whatever you, you prefer. But I'm happy to welcome back to Real Men Feel, Mr. Jed Diamond. Great to be with you, as always. Uh, it's a pleasure to hear your voice on the audio recording of my last book. And excited to be here to talk to you about the work that I've been doing and we've been doing together and the work of men and our relationships to the world. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's always a, a pleasure to, to connect with you, Jed, as part of the show or, or out of the show. Um, yeah, you, you've... Like, you've led a really rich life that that you're open and 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 sharing it and and that's what really is one of the the points of this show to begin with for for men to step up and share themselves as men and hopefully open other men's version of what a man is and just you know break down those walls open the box whatever metaphor you want to use but that's that's what I get a lot from from talking and and reading your work thank you Cool. Thank you. So it's, we're going to talk today about something you've recently written called the, the Good Men Manifesto. Um, and in that, in the introduction to that, you talk about that there's a lot of focus on men these days. And so my first thought is, like, why is that? Well, I think there's always been focus on males uh, and men. Uh, sometimes that's uh, in the things we do wrong or the things that we do that cause harm. That seems to be, you know, where a lot of the attention has gone and is going. And sometimes it's in the context of our relationships with women, because let's face it, you can't really talk about men without talking about women. I mean, we are, you know, ultimately connected in, in all kinds of ways. And I think that recently, I think the, the, the focus has gone again towards men, often, I think, in ways that are misunderstood and are negative, quite frankly. Uh, you know, it sells news more and sells stuff more. But I think part of my interest in writing books and in talking more of what we're going to do today about what I call the Good Men Manifesto, it's to really help bring some light based on at least my, you know, years of experience of being a male and working with men and working with women to both help us clarify what's going on and to also help us really see what's good about men and what's valuable and what's positive about men. Because ultimately, what I do is help people answer three questions that I think we all have and need to answer before we die. And the first is, did I live fully? Did I really live a fully authentic life? Was I the best me I could be? And secondly, did I love deeply and well? Did I really learn about what love is about, both loving ourselves better and our partners better? And third, did I really make a positive difference in the world? So that's what all my work really is about, is trying to answer those questions in my own life and hopefully help other people who 
feel inspired by that to address those questions in their own lives. Cool. And I, I, I love those questions. And it, but is it the idea that people are going to ask themselves that questions, you know, only in the last conscious moments of their life? Or is it to encourage people to, to ask much earlier so that they can kind of develop the answers? Exactly right. Uh, unfortunately, some people wait till they just do their lives. We're busy. Let's face it. We're dealing with, you know, with the crisis of our paying our our, our rents or payments on our houses and dealing with our work situations. And sometimes we don't have time to, to reflect on, more or less to answer these big ultimate questions. And yet, I think they, they operate in the background. So yes, absolutely. Part of, you know, doing shows like yours is to surface the questions that really need to be asked so that we don't have to wait until it's too late or it's far down the road before we really address some of these critical issues in our lives. Right. So you, you did mention that a lot of the focus on men um, takes a, a negative slant lately. So I, I wonder, you know, what's, what are your thoughts? What's your reaction to, the, the, to that whole, you know, almost voodoo term these days of toxic masculinity? Well, I think part of what I, I, I wanted to do and to give a little context for you know, the, the, the manifesto that we're going to talk more about is, uh, as you know, after the uh, book that I wrote on my distant dad, Healing the Family Father Wound, uh, which is my 15th book, I thought, well, maybe this is the, the end of my writing. 15 books seemed like a good number to, to maybe end on. And I was surprised by my wife's reaction because I said, listen, I'd like to spend more time with family. I'd like to do more teaching, more training, uh, more men's involvement, more consulting. Um, and you can't do everything. Right? I mean, there's only so much time we have. But my wife, Carlin, who we've been married now for, for 40 years, and she says one of the reasons she thinks we've had such a good marriage is that I've been in a men's group for 41 years. <laughs> and, and she surprised me in saying that I'd love to have more time with you. I'd love to spend more time doing things. I support you in exploring other things and writing, but you have to write another book. And she's never, ever said anything like that. And she said, you know, with all the conflict and controversy about men these days and the negative publicity and knowing that I, I've devoted my life to working with men, she said, you really need to write a book for both men and women that helps us understand the gift of maleness. Those were her words, the gift of maleness. Below and beyond the the, the, the kind of armoring that we're forced to wear and the, the societal demands that often are placed on us. And so I, yeah, I thought about it and decided to do that. And I, I wrote this book called 12 Rules for Good Men. And it's going to be out in November. And I realized that kind of the core of the 12 rules was some foundation of how do we really embrace the gift of maleness and the the manifesto really was kind of the underpinnings of the book that's kind of woven through the book but I wanted to kind of pull out some of these basic ideas that really have been part of my life kind of in the background and I think many of us know these things feel these things but we've never articulated them in this way so that's what I tried to do and kind of the context for, you know, this work. And it, it comes both from my own work with myself and men and also my wife's desire and I think many other women's desire to really understand why men are the way they are and do the things we do. Okay. So it's not, it's kind of taking away that masculinity ha is negative or positive. There's a way to embrace maleness and, and, and just, use it for, for the benefit of feeling like a man? Does that make sense? Well, when I, exactly right. When, when I looked at kind of the origins of maleness, which was kind of my first question, you know, if we're going to look at 
the gift of maleness. Well, where did maleness begin? You know, clearly, you know, there's male humans and female humans, but, you know, we're all mammals. Uh, you know, we, we, we all, you know, come from a line of, you know, there's male gorillas and female gorillas, and there's male, you know, stallions and female horses and mares. And there, you know, there's this whole, and I don't had a, I didn't have a sense that, that male gorillas or male stallions or male elk are confused about what it means to be male, that they on some level recognize, you know, there's, you're proud to be male. You, there's a whole thing, there's mating and there's surviving and there's, you know, eating and food and all the things that we all do as mammals that I wanted to kind of trace back the origin of where did maleness begin. And I found out it began a billion years ago, one billion years ago, the first male cells and the first female cells that were there. And I think that's wonderful to think that we all, you know, can trace our lineage back, not only to our two million years of human existence, but a billion years of male existence. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You already just blew my mind because I've never thought of maleness predating humanity, <laughs> but it does. It does, and uh, part of kind of what I discovered, you know, my background, uh, in addition to my personal background, which you know we'll share a bit, but uh, you know I went to to college at UC Santa Barbara, and I was pre pre med. And I went to medical school, and I have a very, you know, strong background in biology and as well as psychology and sociology. But I went to medical school, and what what you learned, I eventually left medical school and uh, went into social work. Eventually, got a PhD in international health. But I think we've tended to neglect the biology of maleness and femaleness. Not to say they're they're isn't a whole lot more beyond our, our biology, and we don't want to reduce ourselves to our biology. But we need to understand the grounding that we have in, in our biological world, the connections we have to our male mammal ancestors. We all are male mammals and female mammals if you're female. And we're more than that, but if we don't recognize our connections, one, we feel very alone in the universe. We're kind of an isolated, disconnected species. And that enables us to do some pretty destructive things in the environment that other male and female mammals that are more connected to the circle of life, if you will, um, don't deal with. And so I want to bring the, the grounding in this broader basis for our humanity into the dialogue as we talk about what does it mean to be a good man in today's world. So, so we've mentioned it a few times, so uh, let's really jump into the, the Good Men Manifesto, which is made of 20 different elements, and we're not going to have time to, to dig into all of those, but you, you've already touched on the first one, which is appreciate the biological basis of males and females. And that, that, that's fascinated me in all of your work because you do emphasize the biology and biology isn't just that we have different sex organs right it's it's much deeper and and longer than that right yeah the the core if you're if you're a biologist or you've studied biology you know that the essence of maleness and femaleness has a very specific biological definition and males are the you know the animal or the being that produces small sex cells. They're small sex, think sperm. And females are the ones that produce large sex cells, think egg. And what we don't realize, unless you're a, you know, into biology and you look in a microscope to see, you know, a, an egg is very tiny, but you see it under a microscope, it's very large. Same thing with the sperm. You, have, you know, you can't even see a sperm with normal kind of microscopes. But think of this, when I said the male cells are the small ones, we make a whole lot of small ones or a few larger ones. Well, the size of a human egg is 85,000 times larger than a single sperm. 
Hmm. So right from the beginning, then, if you think of just basic now physics along with biology, it's a lot easier to move the smaller, you know, cell, the sperm to the egg than to move the big egg to unite with the sperm. So from our biology, we know that the male cells are numerous. They have to compete with each other in order to be, get to that, that large, nutritious, large female cell to then create, you know, if chosen and they merge, you know, the beginning of a life. So that's kind of the beginning. And it says a lot, not everything, but it says a lot about who we are as male humans, that we compete with other males, that we need to be chosen by a female who is the choosier and we are the competitors with others to be the one that are going to be successful. Hmm. So that's just right at the biological level. And then there's 19 other, you know, essences in the manifesto, but that's a, an important beginning, I think. Yeah. And it's, and it's funny. And it says so in the manifesto that, you know, the, the notion that, that men are concerned with size and size matters. And wow, does it really go back to it's because of the size of our sperm compared to everything else that we're dealing with? It's certainly part of it. Like I say, not the whole story. Uh, you know, size matters in another way. Generally speaking, males are larger than females and humans and many other, you know, mammal species. And that has a lot then to do with a lot of the fear that females have that guys often are not aware of because, you know, even if we're short like I am, and I don't consider myself really a big macho guy, but I have a deep voice, generally males do more so than females. And we can intimidate other men. We talk loud. That's how you, you know, you compete sometimes. But we can also frighten females who are more vulnerable physically and more in need of support, more fearful of both other men that might be another rival tribe that might come into camp and kill the men, steal the women, uh, take the children. So there's a lot of biological essence that can tell us a lot, you know, and that's as a psychotherapist. I'm interested not just in the biology of our background, but what can it tell us about how to have better lives, better relationships, feel better about who we are and how we relate in the world. Hmm. And another, another aspect of, of that just rooted in the, this beginning biology of, of each human life, it, it, this notion of um, the disposability of men. And so it seems it's it's down. It just starts with you know our consciousness as a sperm, perhaps that yeah. that yeah. Throw a lot of men at an issue. Throw a lot of men into a war and and see who makes it out. And it kind of goes back to uh, the sperm and the egg. Well, that's an essence of you know certainly as the sperm compete, most of them don't make it. Most of them end up dead. The eggs are a more valuable when you think about it. Just it takes a lot more just biological energy to create an egg than a sperm. Um, so you, if you have a whole lot of little ones, they can be more disposable. Um, nature, in a way, does the experimenting on males. You know, the males are more vulnerable. When you look at just the biology of maleness, um, men just have less just biological strength. We think of ourselves as being strong, but males die more easily because we, we do things to compete that often are dangerous. We put ourselves at risk more. Males do that, some because we are the ones that need to compete and females choose. And some of it is just males biologically are not as stable an entity you know, as females. Um, if you think about, I do a little thought experiment, which you can do and our readers can do. Let's say, you know, the, the human species is at risk. And maybe I think we, we are. And let's say as any kind of species that's, you know, getting vulnerable, let's say you're down to two populations. One has 100 males and one female. The other group has 100 females and one male. 
say they live on different islands. Now ask yourself which one of those populations are likely to reproduce and and survive? The one with 100 men and one women? And imagine, what are the men going to do? They're going to compete and probably kill each other off and the woman's going to be there saying, hey guys, how about me? The other one where there's 100 women and one man, you know, women will probably figure out, hey man, you know, let's, you know, let's cooperate, let's share this guy. A man, because of the nature of his biology, you know, can impregnate all hundred women within a short period of time. On the other island, you know, no matter how many, you know, times a man or multiple men impregnate one woman, she's only going to have one child or twins, maybe, you know, in a year's time. So that's part of the reality that we need to understand if we want to understand who we are as males, not that we're, we're limited to that, but it will help us understand and hopefully feel good about being males. I mean, it's, you know, it's good to have that male energy. It's certainly good to have females that have all the qualities that females have. So let's hopefully be able to appreciate who we are build on that for the kind of world I think we all want to create together. Cool. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I haven't come across many other people emphasizing the, the biology and that it some, so many things that we might seem are cultural, societal, or emotional, uh, mental, uh, boy, you can find a biological root. There, there's a, a true physical reason for some of yeah. these the issues that we all deal with. Cool. Well, you'll see as we look at the other aspects of the manifesto it's like all those things you mentioned are true and important there are you know social aspects cultural aspects psychological aspects but if we leave out the biological it's kind of like we've cut out the foundation of who we are and the other things may be true but without the roots you know whether it's a plant or a concept without the foundation of a building it ain't gonna we're not going to understand it very well, and it probably won't last very long without a foundation. Right, right. And I, I love that you've, you've stated it, and of course you stated in the overall manifesto that that's just, it is the foundation. Because, you know, uh, one that jumped out to me is number eight, the honoring our warrior spirit. And certainly right. spirit is different from biology. Right. So would you speak right. about that warrior spirit a little bit? Well, again, if you start out with the reality that we now back into the human world, for 99% of human history, maybe a little more than that, we lived as hunter-gatherers or gatherer-hunters. If you look at who brought in most of the food, it tended to be the gatherers more than the hunters, but hunters were important. Uh, and we lived in small groups. We lived uh, close to connection to the land. Uh, we lived in a tribal societies, and and part of the dangers that we faced were not only survival. There were wild animals that were much better equipped at you know getting their food with teeth and claws and faster runners and and stronger than humans. So the dangers that we had to attend to were the survival needs that we all had, but in order to to be successful, we split up responsibilities. Women were the only ones that could have babies, obviously. The only ones that could nurse the babies, the only ones that could carry them. So, you know, it made better sense that men would go out and be the hunters than trying to carry a baby when you're out trying to chase a rhinoceros or, a, you know, an eland or, so it made sense and the guys, when they had to be careful for other tribes because, you know, we were, you know, egalitarian within our group, but there was competition between groups and other groups would try to sometimes raid our camp, you know, take our women, make babies with them, raise our children. So guys had to be able to be warriors in the sense of, strong, protective, canny, working together as a group, willing to fight when needed to protect our, our, our women and our children and our resources. So this warrior spirit has 
played out through the ages. You, you see it most in actual wars where people fight each other and men organize in groups and fight other men generally. Uh, now we have more integrated uh, armed, armed forces. But it doesn't have to be only war that we do. That warrior spirit, like a warrior spirit, can be put in the service of helping. I mean, the warrior spirit were the guys that you know would go into the ruins when you know the the towers were collapsing, and and firefighters and peacekeepers, and so even though we have that ability to fight and to you know courage to face danger, willing to die if need be to to protect and serve, it can be put to the use in peaceful means as well as as war killing means. But that warrior spirit, I think, is something we have and something to be celebrated. Great. Yeah, and I'm glad you stressed that that last point, that any man embracing his warriorhood, it, it doesn't have to only be in the destruction of some other individual. It can be in service to, to himself exactly. and others. Right. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. And um, another point that, that jumped out to me that it kind of surprised me, uh, Number nine, and enjoy the male communication style of dueling. Right. This is very interesting, and it ties in with the, the previous one, is that we talk a lot about communication, but often we talk about communication between men and women, and we often don't recognize, unless you are in a group only with men, or you're in a group only with women, that males, the natural way in which males communicate is different than the way females generally communicate when they're talking to other females. And there's a, a, a book uh, that speaks to this, and the dueling is one half of the story, and the female part of the story is females tend to duet. Hmm. So males duel, females duet. I give you a little example in, you know, in the manifesto is that when uh, I get a phone call from my friend Lanny uh, to, you know, set up a, a, a date to play racquetball, um, we communicate the way many guys, not all guys, and we, you know, we're flexible. Guys can communicate in a broad range of styles, but this is probably not unfamiliar to guys. Lanny called, hey, Jed, you want to play? Yeah, right on. Yeah. Hey, Lanny, I'm going to kick your ass. Oh, yeah, in your dreams, little man. And we would, you know, kind of duel back and forth. It's fun. It's engaged kind of what men do. It's competitive. And we would go and we play racquetball competitively. We do it with fun. We do it with humor. So the communications tend to be short. They tend to be somewhat, you know, have a, a hostile edge. If you don't understand male communication, women listen out say, God, how can you talk to your friend that way? Uh, and we tend to be able then to go into a place with rules and to be able to interact in a way. I contrast that with if I'm listening to my wife setting up a date with a, a woman. One, it seems from my perspective to go on forever. <laughs> and, and I keep saying, when is she going to get to the point? You know, when is she, I mean, we, we get right to the point. Hey, here, here it is. And when we try to talk together, that's part of where the problem comes in. Men are forever tuning out because women go on and on and on. And women are going, but that's how I mean, we've got to connect with each other. We have to, it's a duet. You go back and forth. You check on how you're feeling. And that's a story about your, your other friend who may be sick in the hospital. And how about the dinner we had last night? Oh, I love your clothes. You're looking so nice. I saw all of that is important to the way women communicate. So part of owning and appreciating our styles is there was a time where men imposed their styles and their values on women. Hey, man, you want to be in the business world? You got to do it this way. And women have come and saying, hey, you know what? we can be in the business world and in quote men's world and we can bring our own style. Well, I think men now often feel intimidated and denigrated for the style in which we communicate. 
uh, as dueling. And I want to just own that that's a part of a style that can be honored. And we have to understand when we talk to women, we have to use a different style, just as I try to teach women. Here, here's why men talk that way. You know, that isn't necessarily a put down. You know, it isn't necessarily he's trying to shut you up. He expects, you know, you to jump in because that's kind of what men do with each other. So we're learning how to expand our, our style preferences. But male duels and female duets is part of that undermining here. You see it actually in human species. You see it in animal species. You know, male animals will tend to communicate that way. Birds will duel. You know, you'll see it with, uh, you know, with elk, you know, and they're, they're trumpeting. And the females of those species, you know, are actually more communicative. They're more engaging. They're more connecting than the males. Yeah, it, it, again, again, I found this, this fascinating. And you're just pointing out that it's just different styles that we naturally, you know, each sex uses more. It's not that one is right and one is wrong or we've got to abandon this way or that way. It's just, no, recognize the differences. Exactly. So, I mean, if you picture a man in, you know, back in the, the, the savannas of Africa out on a hunt with other guys, one, you want to talk quickly. You don't want to be talking a lot. You want to give directions very clearly. And sometimes, you, you, you know, it's kind of no, no bullshit. You got to just say, hey, man, you do that. You know, you got to get out there and cut the, the, the leg of that animal. And I'm going to come in and stab him with a spear. And you better be there because if you don't do your job, I'm going to end up dead. Well, that's a different thing than the women are back at the camp and, you know, it's, it's less, you know, fearful in the moments. They communicate, they're talking to kids, they're multitasking, they're feeding the child, talking to multiple friends. So it, it, we have, again, remember, of our two million year history, 99% of it was in these kind of groups. So the fact that we have this biological evolutionary based brains you know, communication said so those don't go away just because we've been modern for a tiny percentage of that. And that's where understanding our evolutionary history can be helpful. Right. Looking at evolution, looking at biology, looking at communication styles, there are just all these obvious differences between men and women. So uh, it comes as no surprise that that manifests in politics as well. We have natural differences in how men and women engage with politics. So can you talk on that for a moment? Well, it's obviously become, you know, in the news now, more so than, you know, when you have in between presidential elections. And uh, there's a commentator, Chris Matthews, uh, who's a still well-known commentator. And he, he commented, this was a number of years ago, he was talking and he, he called the, the Democratic Party, the mommy party, and the Republican Party, the daddy party. And you still see this, I mean, in politics, in terms of, you know, Democrats have a larger percentage of women who vote. Republicans have more males. There's, you know, talk about part of the reason Donald Trump got elected was, you know, he was able to tap into the concerns of a lot of men in certain economic situations in certain states and so on. But when you look at that question, you see that there are these two different ways of being in the world that really require both, just as we need males and females. You need somebody to do the, you know, the, the protecting, the dangerous work. You need some to, to nurture the children. Well, you see it in politics. Democrats tend to be the ones who want more social policies, who want more policies for health care and to take care. Uh, and again, not to say that all men are doing this, but there's a, a tendency that leans this way. And males tend to, uh, you know, be associated. And Chris Matthews you know, brought this up as more the daddy party. And uh, Ann Coulter, who's, you know, a, a 
fairly well-known female, obviously, uh, Republican commentator, commented, you know, in a previous election that she was more male than any of the Democrats. And, you know, by that she meant, you know, I, I don't know exactly, she, she didn't elaborate, but you could probably imagine that she felt, I'm more, you know, strong, I'm more ballsy, you might, you, know, you might have even said that, I'm willing to tell it like it is, I'm, you know, no nonsense. Well, I would have said to her, you know, no, you're 100% female. And the guys you're talking about as Democrats who you may be denigrating as less than fully male, no, they're 100% male. They're just different styles, different ways. And they're ways in which we survived for, you know, millions of years um, because we were able to deal with both mommy issues and daddy issues. We see it obviously in our families. We need both mommies and daddies to have good, healthy children. Um, even though we don't all grow up in families like that, I think it's still necessary. But politics, and there's a whole lot of other ways in which you can understand the polit political realm if you understand some of these biological propensities that manifest themselves in the political arena, as well as in our families, and well as our, our relationships. There's another um, element of the manifesto, uh, number 13, that, that, that surprised me a bit, uh, except that monogamy is not natural for males and females. Now, I had been, heard it before, but I always heard it just men. You know, men can't be monogamous. I've always heard it men driven, but you're saying it's both sexes. It's not natural. Well, exactly. Well, I mean, by natural, I mean that it, when you look at, they've done, you know, analyses, scientific analyses of cultures all over the world before they've become, you know, all homogenized into modern culture. And most of the cultures uh, throughout human history, they found that there were men that tended to have more than one wife if they could, if they could afford it, if they were, you know, chieftain enough or they had enough resources. And a lot fewer that were simply monogamous, that one, one man and one woman. And even fewer ones where a female would have two husbands. And so w when I say it's not natural, it just means that, you know, it's biologically uh, reality that we, as you say, we see it with men, that men have seem to have more of an interest in having multiple partners than women do. And that's true. Biologically, that, that seems to be the case. And when you get down to the biology, it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. If you're, again, not consciously, but subconsciously wanting to perpetuate your genes and have more of your heredity passed on, which is part of, you know, the all life does that. They didn't do that. We wouldn't be here. We're descended from the people females and males that did that well. So if you just think about it, if, again, a little thought experiment, if I took 100 men in our audience here and I said, okay, I want you to go out and in the next week, I want you to have sex with as many women as you can and get as many women pregnant as you can uh, because you're gonna win millions of dollars if you fathered more children. And I said that to 100 women, go out and have sex with as many men as you can to have as many children as you can. Males obviously can have a lot more children than females in a year, uh, just the nature of the biology. But what it says is that males have had that tendency, but the truth is when you actually look at now we can actually do biological assessments of pregnancies to see who the father was. And more than you would expect, females turn out to be also interested in having extramarital relations more than we thought. So the fact that it is not natural in the sense that, you know, both males and females look for opportunities to mate, 
short term and longer term, males have a tendency to to look for it more. Although interestingly, males do better health-wise in a monogamous relationship. Females seem to do better, and children do for sure. So the fact that it's not natural shouldn't make men go, hey, see, I ought to be able to go out and screw around. Uh, but the truth is, if that's okay for you, it's okay for women. And women, obviously, now with birth control can do that with less risk. And the bottom line, the take home is this, is that if you want to have a healthy monogamous relationship, which most people do, most people I counsel do, you have to work at it. You know, this idea that if I find the right person, we're going to fall in love and then he'll never want to stray or she'll never want to stray is goes against the biology of maleness and femaleness. So if you want it, you have to work at it. You have to learn skills for keeping a relationship alive and well. That's part of what my wife and I've done over the last 40 years, why you need to be in men's groups and a lot of other skilled things in order to learn the skills to communicate well with each other so you can have a long, successful, hopefully committed relationship that is good for all. Cool. So yeah, so it's not that it not being natural doesn't mean it's not beneficial. Right. It just does take work, as you said. Exactly. Great. And kind of related to that, um, element 14, and I had to read this a couple times to, to get, like, why does this matter? But know that throughout human history, 80% of women had children, but only 40% of men did. So it's like the, the, the power, the choice of, yeah. of children is much more on the female side. Well, it, it is. I had to read it many times and both understand it, but it's probably the most significant thing that men and women need to understand that helps explain a whole lot of maleness and femaleness. So here's the deal. Think about, you know, again, take it back into the animal kingdom. Think of gorillas, think of stallions, think of uh, any animals where there is a tendency for males to try to have more than one female. So think of the harems and the, you know, the, the big, you know, elephant seals who will try to. And throughout history, any animals that can will try to maximize their reproductive potential. Well, one way males have done that is to hoard the females. And so you think of the alpha males, they have more children. But the truth is that most of the males in any species who have alpha males are gonna get left out of the reproductive game, the reproductive journey. So again, if you think about it this way, again, thought experiment. If I say to my hundred males, go out and find a female to have sex with, and you can't coerce them, you can't beat on them, you just gotta get a female to want to have sex with you. And you're gonna get a big prize, whatever it is to to make men interested. And they've actually done experiments where, you know, men have, they've done that. They've gone out confederate to see how easy it is to get a woman to have sex with you. And none of the males are successful. I mean, just think of yourself. You can be, well, I got to go out and just try to talk a woman to having sex with me. Now have a room of a hundred women, same thing. And I say, all you got to do is go out there and find a guy who would be willing to have sex with you. Most women could. And throughout human history, most women who wanted to could have children. Most men, because some men got more than their share, ended up not having children. So just think of what that means. A lot of men through human history didn't have any sex or had to sneak to get a little bit without getting killed by the alpha male. And even if you're an alpha male and you're getting a lot of sex, you only stay an alpha male if you can fight and compete and you're always at risk of somebody's gonna be bigger and stronger. So what I've learned is that 
what this creates for males and females is insecure men who are always afraid of if I don't perform, if I don't, you know, make a good living, if I don't do this, I'm going to get left out. Even if he's got a partner, even if there's a woman who loves him, males have this basic, you know, biologically based insecurity that females don't have. Plus, one last one, when you have children, if I ask the males of the pair, all the males who are fathers, and how sure are you that that baby is yours? And then you ask every woman who has a child, how sure are you that that baby is yours? All the women will be 100% sure. And all the men, no matter how much you kept an eye on her, how committed you think she is to monogamy, the old saying, mother's baby, father's maybe. <laughs> That's a very, I mean, again, it this one will take a, a while for people to wrap around. When you read the manifesto, which I encourage people to do, It'll take a while to get that one to sink in, but when it does, a lot of things about who we are begins to make sense. Hmm. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. Lot, lot, <clears throat> some of these are obvious, and I have a quick aha, and some like you really gotta, you know, wrap your mind and even soul around to 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 get the the meaning of them, um, which is why I, I enjoy this, this so much. And and number fifteen is is on that same kind of wavelength when, when i first read it i was like what and it took a while to sit so it's uh accept that the world of men is bipolar not meaning that all men are bipolar but that right. the the culture of men the the world of men that there's a preponderance of men at the top of any sort of spectrum and at the bottom exactly so again because men are the ones that have to compete men are going to be more likely to take risks Men are going to be the guys that sail across the ocean, you know, to find new worlds and find riches. Uh, they're going to be the ones that are going to start the corporations and risk, you know, just watch any, you know, hero's journey. The men are going to tend to take more risks. Well, why? Because they have to. They can't, they're going to get, you know, aced out because the woman in their world, whoever that is, are going to want the guys that are successful. So if you're a poor, you know, guy from wherever, you're going to go take some risks in order to, and some of them will succeed and be at the top. They'll be the heads of corporations. They'll be the scientists that make their discoveries. They'll be the guys that, you know, the entrepreneurs that uh, end up at the top of a new enterprise. But they're also going to be at the bottom the guys that strike out more, the ones that fail. We see it in school. It's why women generally now are higher success in schools and men are failing more. So what I say is that part of what we see in society is men at the top, more men at the top, more presidents at the top, companies, you know, presidents of the United States, mostly men, all men in our case, you also have more men at the bottom commit suicide more often, in prison more often. And sometimes when you talk to some feminists, they'll say the reason that we're kept from achieving is because men are trying to keep us down so they can hold their positions of authority and they're trying to keep us down. Well, that may be true for some, but it's not for all. Men are simply taking more risks. And there's many men in kind of the men's rights or, you know, father's rights movement that feel they see a lot of the men at the bottom, the unemployed men, the men that are dropping out of school, the men that are the recipients of violence, the ones that are ending up in prison. And they, again, unrealistically un will blame women for that. See, women must be keeping us, you know, down. The truth is, if you understand the nature of the whole male journey, the evolutionary journey, you're going to expect this bipolar treatment. 
And that doesn't mean we have to accept it. You know, we can change those, you know, the, the things that make males more access to the top. And we want more women at the top. And we also want to make it so there's fewer men at the bottom, you know, and not accept that, you know, women can't be at the top and men have to be at the bottom. No, we can change all that, but we have to understand why that is and what the change points are that we can all be part of if we want to. Right. Right. And that's key. The, uh, depending on your belief system, the movement you're part of, whatever, if you're only looking at one end of the spectrum and seeing, see, all the men are here, be at the top or the bottom, then that, you know, that affects everything that you believe and what you think needs to change. But it, it's important to realize that uh, there's preponderance of men at both ends because it's almost, you know, the culture of men, the biology of men is want to take more action and those actions succeed or fail. Right. The other side of that, from the women's side, if you think again what women throughout history, not that all women have children, but for women, when you have small children or anybody that takes care of small children, males or females, you want to take fewer risks. Mm. You know, you don't want to drive your motorcycle fast. You want to, you don't want to, you know, take great risks in fighting wild animals because if you die, if you're the caretaker, and case through most of human history, it was females, and you die, your children are likely to die. So women were more willing and able to be more cautious. And it was, you know, it's a good choice. Now we have more options. Men can play it safer now. We don't have to take so many risks because we can find mates more easily than we could through most of human history. We're not elves. We're not gorillas. You know, we're more egalitarian, but we still, all of us, I think, want to achieve and to be at the top. And nobody wants to be at the bottom of, you know, some of the negative hierarchies. And we can all get more comfortable with just being who we are and not always having to be fighting to be somewhere else. So number 16 is become aware that men put, put women on pedestals and also pull them down. Yeah, that's part of the kind of the bipolar nature yeah. of males is that the truth is, and we get into this a lot more in the manifesto, is that um, males, I think, have a great fear of females, just inherently. We all come out of the body of a female, male or female, but we as males, you know, have a, I think, a hunger to you know, separate ourselves. And often if we didn't have strong fathers and nurturing fathers, as I didn't and wrote about, is that we always felt somewhat vulnerable and in a sense, overly connected to females. And so we, 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 we have a need to, uh, to separate ourselves and to be able to find our own place in the world, which often creates a negativity towards the women we're very dependent on. So that's that pedestal denigration. You know, I'm angry at you because I'm dependent on you, you know, but I hunger to be nurtured by you and loved by you and accepted by you. And that's a, a, a dilemma that all women experience from the female side and all males need to understand. And that's part of why I'm so, as you know, supportive and and engage to get men to be able to have these kind of dialogues that we're doing, to have, to talk openly about these issues, mm -hmm. to be in men's groups where we can be vulnerable and listen and talk more deeply with each other because we can't, you know, we can't resolve these things if we never talk about them, if we never reveal them. Right, right. And, and, and on that note, and for the sake of time, I'm, I'm gonna jump to the end and, you know, the 20th element of the Good Men Manifesto is, acknowledging that males learn how to be men in men's groups. Well, again, our biology tells us that is that, uh, you know, from the time, again, our hunter-gatherer cultures, the boys grew up in kind of a boy culture. They were the young, young males who eventually went through an initiation rite as they went from boyhood to young manhood, and they often hunted together, and they were part of a, a group. But we've lost a lot of these initiation rites these rites of passage, which we're reclaiming, you know, in various groups and organizations. But a men's group 
in whatever form that is. And now there's a lot, you know, as you know, I've been in a men's group that's been meeting for 41 years now. And it's just been a, a, a huge benefit to being able to have brothers that I can count on to be able to have deep dialogue. In fact, I was just emailing some of my, you know, guys in my men's group, uh, you know, as we get older together, as we, you know, end up having children, grandchildren, uh, great-grandchildren, some of us, that that essence and that ability to feel safe, to feel nurtured, to feel that we can say anything, can be who we actually are, this is so crucial. And it's why, you know, in, in the book, that manifesto is kind of the, the kind of core underlying document for, it's the first rule that I have of the 12 rules is join a men's group. It's so vital to who we are. Great. So, so as you just said, this, this manifesto of yours leads into your upcoming book, The 12 Rules for Good Men. So that comes out this November? Comes out this November, and I'm starting to you know, let people know. So I tell your listeners, uh, if there's anybody who's listening, watching this, who would like a co full copy of the manifesto, if you email me, just at jed, J-E-D, at menalive.com, jed at menalive.com, and put manifesto in the subject line and ask for it, I'd be glad to send it to you. And you'll also learn more about when the book is going to come out and how you can get an early copy of the book. So I special for your, your listeners and watchers. And uh, if anybody feels resonant with this and would like to connect with me or you have any questions, just drop me a note at jed at menalive.com. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, if you're you know, listen to this in the car, you can't write this down. Uh, visit realmenfeel.org in the show notes. There'll be uh, links to Jed's many books, as well as a reminder of how to request the manifesto, because this is substantial. This isn't just some, you know, pamphlet you're throwing away at like events somewhere. This is a meaty, and it's really a, a living document. You didn't, you know, cre create these 20. This has been morphing over time. Is that correct? Yeah, it's been something that's developed. And because some of the things are controversial, I have end notes where I document everything that I say, not necessarily that this is the, you know, be all and end all document, but I found it's nice to be able to go to some of the sources, to check them out, to learn more. So as you say, it's a very meaty, you know, almost like a small book that kind of goes with the main book, but I'm happy to share it with any of your, uh, your audience that would like to get one. Cool. Yeah, it, it really, uh, with so many footnotes, it, it really is a research project. Yeah. It, it, this, not, not, that, not that I think this would be a bad thing to read, but it's not just, hey, it's Jed's thoughts of being a man, right? It's, it's research-driven Jed's thoughts on being a man. Indeed, and I hope it's not, well, I know it isn't because I've gotten feedback. It's not just academic, you know, footnote writing like I've had to do when I get a PhD, but... <laughs> It's engaging, it's fun, it's interesting. The examples, as you've done a little bit of sharing, are ones that uh, are interesting and somewhat uh, surprising for some, yeah. but always will teach you something you didn't know. Yeah, I mean, I, we might have touched on half of them um, in, this, in this hour. Uh, it's an engaging read, it, it's accessible, it's easy to take in for the most part. I mean, some of the good meat, you're like, wait a minute, you gotta read it again. And, and it's, I recommend it, you know, men and women, Right. This is because uh, because men and women both benefit from more good men in the world. Well, that's absolutely true. That's start. My wife wanted it for herself and women, and I think we all benefit from good men doing good works and you know connecting with good women. So that's that's my journey, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the future. Awesome. Uh, thanks again, Jed, for joining us. Um, I know I get a lot every time we talk, and I trust that, that everyone listening to this gets a lot of it as well. Um, for everyone listening, watching, do uh, take the 30 seconds of your life to request a copy of the manifesto and, uh, and give it some of your attention. It's, uh, it's very beneficial, engaging, interesting. Uh, I think you'll have more ahas than, than even hearing what we have shared thus far. Um, so thanks again. Uh, thanks for everyone listening. Wherever you're discovering Real Men Feel, 
please leave a comment, a like, a share. Let another man in your life know about this show. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Visit realmanfield.org. Check us out on the Facebook group. Send us feedback. And we'll talk to you again soon. And until then, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Reach out to us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. Until next time, visit realmenfeel.org or the Real Men Feel Facebook group and share what you thought of this episode. Please give this podcast a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you are discovering Real Men Feel.